inside the GM studio, back again. Later date than usual, but that's uh, because I've been on the cusp of death for the last couple days, and uh, finally feeling good enough to try this yet again. Uh, but you know, it's a podcast that's all about the tabletop RPG hobby, where we talk mostly about shit for the game masters, but players and aspiring players are always welcome to come in and talk. Uh, I'm your host, Matt. Inspiring players. I'm David. And today, we've got our usuals. We've got community questions. We're going to talk about the Curse of Strahd game that I remember about two hours of. Uh, We've got (laughs) our main topic, uh, talking about uh, recurring NPCs, as well as uh, got an email from Rebecca that I'm pretty sure we're going to be able to get to today. And if you will excuse me every now and then, I will be coughing. I might be sniffling. I'm sorry. I had the, as Dave's likes to call it, the Space Aids of the 2020s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm going to apologize to Rebecca. We, we didn't forget about you. We did get your email and do want to talk about it. But uh, I think with the whole D&D movie and my whole diatribe spec script, we kind of <laughs> get derailed a couple weeks back. Um, so, so our yeah, last but, session, I really did want to talk about this because something came up that is like the, it's like the one thing that I really remember, uh, that we've talked about so times is Beto, if you're listening, dude, I love you, but please just learn to play your fucking class, learn to play the fucking game there. I timed it. There was, I don't even remember what it was. Cause I was all doped up and just sick as hell but um i don't remember what it was but we had to sit here and talk mechanics well you and beto talked mechanics for 10 minutes and 28 seconds yeah that was ridiculous (laughs) some of that was on me Uh, i was trying to here's my philosophy to cut myself off because i'm a big fan of doing that uh I'm of the philosophy that it's never wasted time to stop and explain something to somebody when it comes to the game. Now, typically, I don't feel as if in the middle of a session that's necessarily all that fruitful unless it's quick. But a reason I feel like it's not wasted time and if it needs to be in the middle of a session, then so be it. Is because you're just investing in the player's understanding of the game. And you tell them, and most people remember you telling them. They learn. They learn about how things work. And then it just saves you the time of having to skirt around it. Over a long arc, I think, if you're just like, well, just, you know, don't worry, really worry about like why or how then the next time it comes up, you're just going to kind of have to skirt around it. Whereas if the players just know it, learn it, internalize it, then they just know. And the game over a long arc should run smoother. Now we're what a couple years into this campaign. And so I feel like those questions should be less and less, but it's all predicated on the player. Like he said, really understanding how they're, character runs how the certain game mechanics run and 
so it can get kind of frustrating. I don't even remember what we were yeah, talking about. Do I you? don't remember what the uh, what the actual mechanic was, but all I remember is that as soon as it started going and it wasn't going anywhere, I hit start on my stopwatch on my phone because I wanted to see how long this was going to take. And I also, by the way, looked up uh, after the fact as to whether this was this is a really good thing that came up. The slow effect, in this case, it's a golem's power, but it's also a spell. The slow effect specifically says that you can make one attack. Mm. And so the question came up as to whether when you cast Eldritch Blast, which creates two beams, whether you get to fire off both beams. It certainly seems like there is some let's call it a contention around this issue. But I think the balance of probability is in favor of no, that because the general rule is an attack is anytime you make an attack roll. That is the general rule. Now, specific always trumps general, right? General rule in D&D is round down. But for hit dice, for instance, I think it says to round hmm. up. Uh, like if you have, you get half your hit dice rounded oh. up, I think I, mean, I could be wrong about that, but there's, there's some things where it specifically will call out rounding up and it's a specific ruling that goes against the general rule of in D and D you round down. So just like there's not a lot of clarity when a, when a monster has resistance to a damage type, for instance, like, like the golem does and someone does an odd amount of damage, do you round up or do you round down? Are you rounding? Are you rounding? I know it, the general rule is to round down, but which number are you rounding down? The resistance or the damage? <laughs> and so I split the difference and just go every, every even time I round down and every odd time I round up. So if you attack him one time and do five points of damage, he takes three. And if you attack him a second time and do five points of damage, then he yeah. takes two. So ostensibly, he's just taken five of ten damage. I find that works pretty well. It's usually it's just one hit point here and there, so it doesn't really make much of a uh, cumulative effect. But I feel you, man. Uh, I think that it's there's no controlling for conscientiousness. Some some people are just more conscientious than other people, and some people are not that way. And so. You know, it's, I'm fairly confident that over a long, I've been playing this game long enough that I can pretty much run any type of character fairly well. And, um, mostly just because being a GM has made me acutely aware of how much players often underuse powers, spells, things that they don't even think about, like their background mm -hmm. features and their toolkit proficiencies and their vehicle proficiencies. So I'm always like, I don't, I don't know if that makes me a power gamer, but I'm always looking for cool opportunities to use things that are not often used. Uh, languages I speak, and like I said, you know, you have toolkit, and you're like, okay, so this is, um, you know, like a thing I'm trying to do, and I'm always really happy when players can think of kind of cool ways to use their not often used skills. Like, for instance, in the Dragon of Ice Spire Peak, there's that hidden little Easter egg where there's a, this bell made of all the town's treasure in, in this bell tower. 
And my party found it, first of all, which I thought was fucking weird. I was like, God, what's the likelihood? I mean, it's like 2,500 gold pieces worth of gold in this giant bell that is hidden in plain view. But you'd have to climb up into the bell tower and kind of examine it and really have an idea and, and also troubleshoot how to get it down. And so one of my players is like, hey, um, I have proficiency in Smith's tools. Could I use those to like take the bell down? I mean, it seems like they would be kind of the same things that you would use on pliers and stuff like that. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. That's great. Roll a proficiency check. Right. And they, they got it down and like had the floating disc, like carry it back to town. They're like level four. They have 2,500 gold pieces. It's like, wow. And then they died promptly after that. Um, but, and, and, and another one of the players too was like, Hey, I have proficiency in Smith's tools. Is there any way that I could like negotiate with the, um, owner of the smithy to use his hearth i was like well, why do you want to use his hearth well, well i want like i presumably can just make like a metal rack right like he has all these smith tools and stuff around that used to and i was like right and he's like so i just want to melt this down this bell i want to melt it down into a bunch of gold ingots you know and just pull the rack out and there'll be a bunch of basically gold bars I was like, well, that's pretty clever, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Try to do that, right? And so those things always make me happy, and I'm always looking for shit to do. Um, but yeah, there's no accounting for just, well, how do mm -hmm. I do this? What's an Eldritch Blast again? Uh, I don't so, no, no, I got to um, say, I'm looking forward to be being done with the temple sooner than later. Oh, yeah. I'm a little dungeon delved out. I think, goddamn, how long? We've been in there for like four weeks. Four sessions we've been in there. Yeah. So... I'm loving it. I like the kind of dungeon crawl. Like I, I miss you know, it. One thing that I, I, I like do the like crawl. that I've been really having a fun time with is um, lack of resources. Like I've never yeah. gone this long without hit die, you know, and then taking a short rest and it really meaning something. It's a it, nice it, edge. It, it's a nice edge. It's a challenging uh, area and you guys are pushed down to the bottom. Yeah. Well, why don't we just get to talk about the game? So, uh, so this week on Dungeons and Dragons, uh, Curse of Strahd, the Amber Temple. And so the party pushed past uh, where they encountered the Lich and down into the second layer of the dungeon where you encountered a horde of vampire spawn. And that was fairly, uh, like, it was kind of challenging. It was fairly challenging. Uh, that that fight went off without a hitch. Uh but the party is hurting and then those are like you know the serious amber vault basically the amber sarcophagi yeah this, we, are, we ran some... into our second set of the yeah. the amber sarcophagi which yeah. if i remember a little bit about them but i know that there's what two more sets i think I can't be, I could be wrong. It's been a long time since I've read. It's part of what I like about it too, is it says you don't, yeah. you never run mm -hmm. through this dungeon, so you don't know what's in here. Yeah. There's a lot of Back stuff in the day when I first know. read through Curse of Strahd, I think I ran, I read through Amber Temple once, just like I did with Castle, yeah. uh, Castle Ravenloft. I read through it once. I yeah, I haven't got to Castle Ravenloft yet, but, uh, but I've read, I read, I read through it every time before we play. And so, you know, Beto, has clearly accepted one of the dark gifts, but I tried to whisper to him what that all meant. And so I think the party is kind of not really knowing. Mm -hmm. It was pretty clear that Casimir also availed himself to one and then absconded. Uh, 
Oh, that's what that's what the the big discussion oh, yeah, the was. It was about the ice. the ice wall. Because here's the thing is is here's what I didn't want to happen. For him to be like, yeah, I'm just going to block off the entrance to the stairs. And I'm like, okay. I didn't want it to be like a situation where it's like he just didn't. He's like, well, no, that's not what I meant. You know, like the situation on the fucking hill or whatever. It's like, dude, you're just blocking off one segment. He's either going to blast through this with a firebolt or like it's a spiral staircase. Like he can see the top of the stairs. He can just misty step up there. So I was like trying to explain to him. Part of it is just like read the text. What does it say? So you can create a wall, like however you want to. I want to know how you want to orient that wall up this spiral staircase. Are you trying to block his line of sight? Are you trying to make the the wall of ice is like a, just a solid wall of ice that like, you know, accordions up and down the stairs so that he has to blast through several segments because you only have a certain amount of segments and there's no way you can do both an accordion of ice all the way up and down the stairs and also block his line of sight. So you have to choose some variation. Things like that are always complicated when they're, they're not binary. It's not one or the other. It's like, well, you can do any combination between point A and point B, right? Any number between one and two, 1. 1. 1. 1. 1.1, 1.2, 1.3, 1.4, 1.5, 1.55, right? Like any permutation in there, it overloads players' brains. And I think that's what happened is he's like, and he was trying to, instead of trying to explain to me what his intent was, which would have probably been a lot quicker, I just want to create a wall of ice that prevents, blocks his line of sight and puts a few barriers, at least two barriers of ice that he'd have to blast. Would you have taken, I want to create a wall of ice that holds him back as long as possible. But see, long as possible is like contingent on some Mm -hmm. things, right? You know that he has fireball and so he can blast through the wall of ice. And you know that the wall has vulnerability mm-hmm. to fire damage, which means he ostensibly does double damage. Each each segment of wall has 30 hit points, which means he can probably get through it with one firebolt most of the time. A firebolt at his level does 2d10, so that's an average of, what, 11 damage. So 22 is what you would cause on average. So a decent, a decently placed firebolt can and would put the put a segment of wall down. And if he's only going to get through one and then he can run up the stairs, it doesn't really matter that the, his line of sight is blocked, mm-hmm. right? Seeing so as run all the way up the stairs. So you just have to, you have to give me some sort of, I don't need like a detailed schematic of exactly what you're doing, but I need something quantifiable. I want at least three barriers of ice, two barriers of ice, a barrier of ice. And then I also want to block his line of sight as much as possible up to the top of the, the railing, knowing that he can teleport 30 feet. As long as it's like he can't see past 30 feet, then that's sufficient. I would just, because they're both quantifiable, 30 feet and at least X amount of barrier walls. So, yeah, that caught us up for a long time. It caught us up explaining it. (laughs) Uh, But I thought it was dramatic. And then he dropped the ice and then Casimir absconded anyway. And everybody was like, who "Who cares? cares? (laughs) Who gives shit? Why they go? Fuck that guy. Right. Um. So that was cool. We don't know what Beto's dark gift is. Uh, we don't know how that dovetails with 
any of the motives that he might have. Patrick was fucking some shit up. Um, the vampires fight would have been way harder oh, dude. without the sun, With the sun blade and the mace. Holy fuck. The mace didn't. Oh, really? Hit. Chris didn't hit anybody with them. Yeah. He didn't hit anybody oh, with the mace. Okay. He, he tried a couple times and failed, but yeah, it was mostly the sun blade. Then we segued into, uh, moving southward through that, uh, the party lured, uh, the Amber Golem that was guarding the, um, another vault with tons of booty in it. And, uh, so he smashed through there and the party took care of him. And I felt like I helped, I gave you guys a little bit of help because I told it hadn't occurred to me to previously tell Chris that you don't need to be attuned to the Mace of Disruption to use it just to make use of its properties. And so I didn't know if he knew that and he was confused. He was like, why are you telling me this? And I was like, okay, well, you know, from a previous encounter with the Amber Golem, that regular weapons do nothing. They do nothing. Mike fought the, the Amber Golem like toe to toe, just carving it up and just doing nothing. Mm -hmm. And I was thought I was pretty clear that the whole party realized that like Mike is not going to be able to damage this guy. Um, so I was just thinking like, well, you know, Chris might just want to, if Chris has spells, he might just want to give Mike his mace. But I was like, I don't know that he thinks he, he knows he can do that. And so I also totally spaced the, the vampire fight might have gone a little faster if I had remembered that all of your attacks are mm. magical too. Didn't remember that. Um, so, but all in all, it still was, was pretty good. I thought I was a little more thoughtful about description and setting mood um, than I was in the previous week. Yeah, and Patrick so, did fuck shit up, but he got pretty fucked up as well. Now that he's, he's down well, a hey, lot man. of like, major hit points. Like literally, yeah, you had to stand, kind of stand back a little bit at the uh, at the the amber golem fight. Well, I mean, just imagine like you have six vampires and just standing near him like fucking causes them, I think, twenty radiant mm -hmm, yeah. damage and stops them from regenerating. Like they're just gonna they like just going ape shit. We just have to fucking kill that guy and turn the sword off. Like so, there's every attack with a, a few exceptions that were convenient was directed at him, and it was like that's kind of uh, one of those interesting party resource things where it's like okay we, we mentioned this before actually it's like sometimes they'll be like okay there was a hundred damage done and there's five party members and and you could say okay it was like you know 10 per party member wouldn't be that wouldn't be that severe of a fight but if it's like 70 percent of it went to mm -hmm. one character then now you have one character with no hit dice who is totally fucked up and is a frontline and fighter it's literally his hit point That's maximum is now halved because I think he did. He got he's, he he's, got bit like four or five times. Yeah, not as much though. I mean, he had Shield of Faith on there for a good portion Could of have the been battle, a lot thanks worse. to Chris, and and he has a pretty decent armor class with a shield and chainmail. So he's like eighteen armor class. So it was like 20, mm -hmm. 21 was his armor class. I think he has splint mail though, didn't he? No, he has chainmail. But uh, so that that'll be interesting to see how that plays out and whether you guys are going to poke into every corner of the temple or just kind of cut your losses, especially now that Casimir is absconded and head back uh, to Valaki. I mean, it is night, so um, I don't know how that's going to go. So I'm kind of in a, I had to poke at Beto after the game to ask him, Hey man, like what's your intent now that you have this dark gift? Like, what are you planning? I need to kind of know for the purposes of the plot what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and, and to get some idea. Um, 
and without giving too much away, that could produce some pretty interesting turns in the plot. Uh, the Amber Temple will, you guys will get a milestone. Um, unless, I think if you leave now, I might not give you a milestone. Maybe I will. Um, it's like a 50-50 now because you have gotten to a decent amount. These sarcophagi are like, you know, typically the adventure assumes that you come in the other direction. Right, through the double doors from the... Through know. the double doors, which uh, the battle with the golem would have been more difficult too, just to kind of talk a little inside baseball. If you come through those doors, the amber golem gets a, an invisibility oh, spell really? cast on him automatically. Yeah, and so he's invisible. And so like it's just like a way harder Jesus. fight than it probably should have been. Um, so that, that went off pretty well. Uh, I think the party, while your eyes got pretty big at the, the prospect of the treasure, now there's the practicality of, well, how the fuck do we transfer all of this shit? Out of uh, here? Yeah. What are, what are we going to do with it? Like, how are we going to leverage this, this wealth into mm -hmm. anything really? It's, you know, it's all worth a ton of money. Um, I think. Patrick is likely to, to scoop up the chariot and take that because that's just a really rule of cool kind of thing. There's yeah. chariot. I think that's going to be our gold gilded. Our, uh, that's how we're going to be taking out a lot of that shit. Just shoving it in the chair. Yeah. Well, and after this too, I think it'll be, it'll be a game changer because level nine is when clerics get access to race. Ooh, oh yeah. So initially too, I also did you guys a kindness. Initially there is uh, something like, 30, 30, 50 gold piece value mm -hmm. gems or something. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make these all diamonds. Whatever the aggregate gold piece value is, 1,500 worth of gold, I'm just going to make I them wondered if you did that on purpose. Because when you said it was diamonds specifically, purpose. I was like, oh, okay. I, got, I know what he's talking about. Yep. Yep. So there's, and there should be, I think there's four of them, right? So there's four or 500 gold piece diamonds. So it's like, that's five uses of raised bed. Um, because, I mean, the adventure is pretty unforgiving about allocating resources. And you saw how difficult it was just for Mike to get some new yeah. swords. Like, just regular, uh, out of the fucking adventuring equipment book, like, mm -hmm. swords. Uh, healing potions are in short supply. So, um, but it, it kind of, I kind of like that. And I like that it, it because it discourages, uh, I mean, wealth isn't really all. I mean, yeah, you guys have these things, and after you know, you're getting to the end of the adventure. So after the adventure, you'll have a, a bunch of booty. But it's like, you know, it's like, oh, I just found a thousand gold pieces. It's like, well, yeah. so what? What am I going to do with that? What am I going to go buy with a thousand gold pieces? It would have been better to have something that I can use right now. Like two potions of healing would have been more valuable yeah, than a thousand exactly. gold pieces. So uh, I like that the the game is kind of scarce, but everything is kind of distilled into this area like you guys have basically found virtually no magic items and virtually no i mean coming into this let's see mike had in this adventure i cut a lot of it out too a lot of the magic items that probably should have encountered but mike has the cloak of protection and the ring of protection you have the pipes and of haunting nope, i sold them i think yeah yeah i don't have them oh. anymore oh you, you sold them i don't i thought i saw them in your equipment but anyway you got yeah. the pipes of haunting and um I mean, and then the Sunblade, and that's it. So that those are the only magic items. But like this area is just like like eighty percent of the magic items in the whole fucking campaign are like distilled into yeah. this area. 
Um, so like Beto's got the Staff of Frost now, which again, reading is hard. So I'll just cast Wall of Ice. It's fine. It's, I use, I'm down to eight charges. It's like, uh, that doesn't, that's a six level spell. Dude, there's no way it costs one yeah. charge. He's like, oh, it costs four charges. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, no the shit. Thing, the, other, uh, the other guys weren't aware of it, but when Beto told everybody, I think you were off taking a piss or something. <laughs> he told him, he was just like, I get, I have to roll a D20 every morning. And if I roll a one, the staff melts. And everyone was just like, what? It's what? Like, yeah, shit happens, man. Is it every morning? I thought it was just if you, if you use, use the, the last, last charge. charge. Yeah. yeah, if you use the last charge, you roll a D. That, that's that way for all wands and staves and staves. Staves, wands, all implements. Like, if you use the last charge, then you roll, if you roll one on a D20, then it just crumbles. I don't think dust. anybody knew it's that about the magic items. Well, no one, I've never had a, uh, I've never had, I've never given a player since I've been running a game with Mike, Chris, and Veto yeah. an item that has charges. Oh, okay. Like, the only, the only spellcasting magical spell casting implement i gave chris a holy symbol just a plus one holy symbol which he lost when he died as kind of a consequence and then beto had the rod of the pack keeper which doesn't use mm -hmm. charges and so no one's ever had an item with charges before so that's kind of fun i, I like the whole charge system and how get, get back some each day kind of yeah thing. yeah so do i cool. that's kind of like extra I like spell slots too. pretty cool it's a uh, i also really like too that this is something that i'm probably venturing to guess will come up at some point using the using the staff is not casting a spell use it's item use magic item that's your that's what you're the action you're taking and so i don't know if beto realizes that he could still cast a spell like as a bonus action yep. if he has any bonus action spells he can use the staff and use a spell nothing stops him from doing that this is one of the questions i tried to throw you for a loop for. um but yeah i don't know i thought i thought it, this this session went well we didn't make through a ton of the dungeon but like you said it's slow going I, i'm enjoying the dungeon crawl aspect but i i can see how you're probably getting a little beleaguered you like the little more free range kind of mm -hmm. adventuring short little like the uh like the hag's nest or yeah. whatever right just like a little two or three room thing where you go in and do and then you do some exploring and uh, because it can kind of become a little tedious if if you're going through everything with a fine tooth comb in an area like this, you probably want to try to get as many secrets as you can. But that uh, I, I hear you. If it's if it's too long, this is like the only real big mm -hmm. dungeon though, besides Castle Ravenloft. So it's like I don't mind it, and it kind of primes you to to get ready to push into the castle. The castle the castle has a lot more texture it feels more lived in um so that's cool there's more opportunities for like role playing and stuff like that so that's it's kind of cool but i think every now and again you kind of got to bite the bullet and remember what it's like to get your ass kicked in a fucking dungeon like it's that. very so, true kind of fun. i'll agree with yeah. you on that all right rebecca our number one fan sent us an email not too long ago <laughs> and i thought we could go over this real quick it's a simple question um mm -hmm. rebecca writes in saying it's con season, and I'm getting my GM con kit ready. So I have a nice little nice. kit that I make for every year going to cons, and this year I'm GMing more than usual. I've already got two cons set up. This is why I thought she was in California, because only I think only in California there are two big gaming cons coming up that are like 
right around the same time as each other. Hmm. And I want to know what you guys would have in your GM con kit. I know that Matt says that he's done cons before and Dave hasn't. Mm-hmm. So Matt, what is in your GM con kit? And Dave, what is just your GM traveling kit? Why don't you start? Because yeah, I have no experience. I have found out my very first time GMing at Gen Con, I tried to do way too much. I had a fucking map case pretty much full of maps. I had my my one a satchel bag and then i had like a little briefcase of miniatures and other shit and i carried this all around the convention center and it was oh geez. horrible because i was also that was also the big um the amount of time i've never spent that amount of time gming in a con ever before but that's also when i was doing G- uh, green ronin and they were like how are you with big tables and i was like what do you mean by big tables they said are you willing to gm for a lot of people I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. Little did I know when they said, I, I would, I would have asked, shit, what's a lot? They gave me the four-hour session tables, and I didn't have a table that was less than twelve people. Yeah, it was. Nope. It Don't was do that. Rough. Uh, so after that year, I really toned down my shit. So now mm-hmm. I have a nice little, like, you know, it's like a tackle box or an art box that I bring with me. Mm-hmm. I have switched from uh, the regular, what are now plastic D, uh, minis or, you know, pewter minis. I went to uh, mm-hmm. flat minis, paper minis. You can get the mm-hmm. little bases. You can just print them out, cut them out, and then the little bases that you can slide them into, you can get a hundred of them oh, yeah. for like five bucks. And it, really? they just, you know, those, do you remember those little flat cases that I put all the terrain and shit in back in the day? I just throw them in there and there's like 200 minis in there with all the bases and I can just slip that right in my bag. Perfect. Same thing with, um, terrain maps. What I do instead of using the big, um, sheets and drawing it all on there, I'll draw little ones about, you know, 15 by 15. I'll cut those out and then I'll fold them up and I'll put them in another one of those flat, uh, cases, put it in my bag. And then in the little tackle box, I have extra pencils, dice, um, some other little like gem markers for stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a calculator just in case uh, my phone is dying or I don't have my phone with me, uh, as well yeah. as dry erase markers, stuff like that, and index cards. All the other books and everything I have uh, will be in my bag for whatever I'm running that day. Hopefully, I'm not running too many different games. I'm only doing one, like a smart person. So I'll have the one book in my bag and I've, I mean, I've cut down three quarters of what I used to bring just by getting those little flat uh, things and just going a lot lighter. Uh, other than that, I make sure to have at least three to four extra sets of dice for people at the table, just in case, as well as the index cards. Uh, oh, other big one for if you're doing cons and you're running the game, Make little table tents for people's names, for their name and their character's name. So that way they can just mm. put it out in front of them and nobody has to write it down or just try to remember. They can just look and be like, oh, yeah, you know, Jeff, gotcha. Yeah. Uh, but that's it. That's all that I do. I go very simple now. I think if I ever to run a game at a con, which I'm not averse to. It's probably something that I would have to go do with you. I don't know that I would endeavor to do it alone. But if you and I, like, we're going to go, hey, let's go to whatever. 
I'm in San Jose. I don't know. They don't really have like a gaming convention here. Uh, but like you said, I think there probably are multiple in California that are probably down in LA. They got one like close. once every two, three months. Yeah, yeah, it's at least a huge population. It's certainly more. Um, you know, it's it's kind of surprising that with, with all of all the tech campuses up here, I bet you just like a ton of those people are D and D nerds. Um, but first and foremost, I would most likely insist on everything being analog i don't like having computers i don't like people having smartphones we did this at my previous campaign before while we were on hiatus from strad and i really like it i really like that people just don't have their noses in their phones maybe maybe it's an ego thing but it's like when i'm talking like i i want people to be mm. listening and i want people to be engaged in the game and that's hard, it's almost impossible to do if you have some sort of device where you can open a tab and do this and that and whatever. And, you know, not to mention it encourages, well, actually, you know, like, actually, that's not, I was just looking it up and it's like, just fucking stop that. <laughs> um, so I have a, just a cloth tote that I take with me to the game. And it's not very big. It's your typical tote sized. And it's got Frank Frazetta's Death Dealer on it, which is an awesome <laughs> D&D bag. Awesome. Uh, ha had to get it. So I got this for, for my D&D game. So, obviously, you got to have all the kind of basics. If I'm running D&D, I'm going to have the Player's Handbook and the, Dun and the DMG. I am a big fan of the monster cards. I think I've gone on a rant about this before, that I think it's a worthwhile endeavor to have the monster cards and it obviates the need to carry the monstrous manual with you. So I like to like to have a bunch of note cards. Uh, unlike you, I don't, I don't, if you sit down at my table and you don't have dice and you want to play D and I get up and leave, just leave my game. Why don't you have dice? You're here to play Dungeons and Dragons. It's like the first order of business. I can cut you some slack about not having a pencil. <laughs> I have a little pencil case that has a, a click eraser. I erase shit a lot. I write almost everything in pencil, but I have a pen, an eraser stick, and a mechanical pencil, and then my headphones live in there too. So I take those things. Um, I would be inclined to either have a rollout battle mat or do like you said. I think dungeon crawls are ideal for something like a con because you're not really getting into a lot of like the long form narrative. And I think I've gone on this before that I think a really clever way to do it is to simply break the entire dungeon up by mm -hmm. room. Just break every room up. Like, make sure if you design it, design it deliberately that everything is blocked off by doors. There's not a lot of open alfresco areas that bleed into each other. Everything is blocked off by a door, and you can just draw out each room on a big thing of graph paper and you know, like you said, fold them up. Or what I used to do is I would just draw every room on a piece of normal size graph paper. And then I'd if you have the erasable battle mat, then, you know, somebody's just delegated the cartographer or whatever. And you just go like, hey, draw that out. Make the room simple. Make them easy to draw out. I didn't know about the little plastic uh, base paper minis. Uh, so I still have some minis that I've accumulated. Not nearly like I had in Iowa. I had a whole bookcase full of them. Oh. I'm sure you remember. We oh, both. Yeah. I we still both got a shit ton. Hundreds of, of minis. 
Yeah, hundreds just too of cumbersome them. now. And I don't want to drag them to place to place every time I run a game. Right. Yeah. So yeah, having the little things where you could just change them or whatever. These are orcs and these are goblins or whatever. Uh, that's cool. We had a few uh, Mike 3D printed some some little like tokens or whatever that we we would use. So that's that's cool. And I would imagine it's all just kind of boilerplate stuff. If you're trying to maximize portability and ease, uh, I think if you you're GMing more than you have. Try to think of things that are essentials for each game. And there should be a lot of overlap. Uh, things that are essentials. and You overburden yourself with thinking that you need every source book and everything, whatever. And I get that that's part of the appeal of, of having your laptop is you can just have a lot of it on your laptop and it stands in for 50 books or whatever. So I don't begrudge somebody that would do that, but for... Just practicality's sake, I just don't, you know, I don't want to be the guy with a computer and then have everybody else be like, well, you yeah. can't have your computers. And yeah. I just, but I just don't want to look out at a table and see a, a, a face full of people staring yeah. at screens. And I've gotten so, it, it ruins the, it ruins yeah, the, I've gotten so me. good at just flipping open a book and quickly going to something because I know what I'm looking for. And everyone's just like, oh, well, yeah. fucking control F. And I'm like, no, fuck you. I can just pick up the book real quick and I know, can get to it super quick instead of, Control F. I've never. What am I looking for? Oh, yeah, there's two hundred. I've never been able to navigate a, a PDF quicker yeah. than I can flip through a book. Yep. Uh, part of it is probably just because I enjoy sitting with a book, mm -hmm. like on my couch and yep. reading, and I'll do that with role playing books when I get them. And so you oh get some God. familiarity to the layout. I've got four of them in over on the floor, right in front of the couch, because I just, like you said, I'll get on the couch, I'll pick one up, and I'll just start flipping through it. Nah, I'm. I mean, certain things like. I remember who was it somebody was like uh yeah you know i really should have like uh put those little markers in my in my book and i'm like what are you looking for and i'm like equipment i'm like it's on yep. page 126 <laughs> <laughs> like you just know the page i'm like for certain things yeah i just remember the page like i just look at it enough and so i don't think you can really replicate that with a pdf and not to mention it's like flipping and then it's like the PDF is like loading. It's like, I don't have that problem. I just, I know I pick up mm -hmm. the book and I just know about like, okay, spells are in like the back third of the book. And I just go, okay, here we go. And there's, these are the R's. I want the T's. I'm just like two pages back. Boom, I'm there. And so that makes it a lot easier for me. I think I would prefer to have whatever uh, books were needed. But that said, I probably, I mean, I don't even remember the last time I looked in the player's handbook or the DMG yeah. for anything. You, if you've been gaming long enough, you should know all the content in there. Unless you need to look up like a magic item in the DMG or you need to look up a spells. Yeah, or you want to use a table for something. Right, right. Um, but in general, I think that part of why I've never opted to go to a con is because I feel like it would be on such a big time mm. crunch and I was like try not to run games that are like that way you have to be really organized to maximize the efficiency of your time and I mean not that anyone is going to complain I'm sure everybody's there at play and, no and nobody wants to be the, the game master so that's they're likely just to have a good time regardless yep. because they're just there to enjoy the game but yeah, yeah it's all about I, I don't know that I would have any downsizing downsize everything yeah. that you can 
Because I'll tell you what, coming from experience, yeah. walking around that convention center with try, all that shit, you're trying to be real cool and be real flashy and shit. Fuck that. Get comfortable. I, I have one set of dice. I'm like the only GM that's like, I, I might have two now, but yep. I don't. Why do I need more than mm-hmm. one set of dice? And they all do the same. Every time thing. I buy like a starter set or something that comes with dice, I end up giving it away now because I have mine yeah. and that's it. I just use those. They all do the same thing. So, all right. Anyway, hopefully, hopefully that answers that. Yep. I don't know. Rebecca, that, uh, all I got to say probably wasn't very downsize, baby. Keep it down. All right, then. Let's see. You want to do a community question? Let's see if we can get one out real quick. Oh, shit. I got I to roll a digital. Oh, dice see, that's what you get for only having one set of dice. You fool. No, it's not that. I have a specific die. I just didn't bring it out with uh, with my stuff. I get a seven. All right. This one comes from important baby. Important, important baby. baby. Uh, ancient terror help wanted. I recently somewhat painted myself into a corner. The party five level eights ventured in, uh, ventured down into destroyed dwarven city located underground. The legend said that the dwarves got greedy and dug too far and awakened an ancient terror, which then destroyed most of the city and killed the dwarves. Yeah, 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 I know. That's the Balrog. Yeah. <laughs> Last session ended with a cliffhanger. They had just reached a big dark room, and in front of them was a large shadow. When they got closer, a huge eye opened. Curtains. I haven't said it's a dragon and doesn't need to be. I'd really like to avoid smog. My problem now is that I can't come up with a way to make this next session session interesting either they turn around plot arc abandoned i guess fight it definite tpk or somehow sneak by any tips for me on how to make this a fun session i'm in desperate need of help this one there's really there's those two options one of them i highly suggest trying to stay away from (laughs) and then uh, yes, running away is always good. Don't try to, don't say that it's going to be plot abandoning. You can always work something out. Um, mm-hmm. the other thing is, is that remember people don't always realize dragons are smart. They're smart and they're greedy. They're super greedy. So if your player characters can somehow entice this dragon which i'm guessing an ancient terror that destroyed a city this thing is you know supposed to be big and powerful they really need to get on its greedy side to at least like give them some time to figure out something to do uh talking always can help uh with them like figuring something out uh especially if it's uh let's see what are the uh, is it the green dragon? No, it's not the green dragon. One of them are very vain as well. I know that. Mm-hmm. They're like super vain. So if you can also do something to um that they could do, you know, have let them all just go ahead and bring it out there. Hey, everybody do some knowledge checks on what you know of ancient dragons. Dragons in general. Let them know they're greedy. They're vain as fuck. You know, yada 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 and they're smart. Uh so that they can come up with some ways to say, like, 
hey, I have this item or I know where I could get this item for you. If you let us go, I can get you this thing. And then, boom, you got a whole new arc that has to be done. But that might be not enough. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, parlaying is probably ideal there. and Give some opportunity for role playing. It really matters what type of dragon, right? On the relative scale of dragons, like white dragons aren't very smart, but green dragons are very smart. And so, but anything that's likely to be an ancient dragon is probably beyond the PC's intellect. So tricking it should probably be fairly difficult, but playing its own vices against it is good. But this is born out of a larger problem, which is in the interest of some sort of like, whoa, oh my God, cliffhanger, like cool moment the DM had no forethought as to like what was going to happen right. next. Yeah, yeah. It's like just writing a script one page at a time. It's like, well, sure, that's cool. And like, oh my God, there was a car chase and then a gunfight. And then it's like, right, but then, but now what happens, right? It's so, the the larger issue here is how did you not give any forethought into what was going to happen and why were you so fixated on this big dramatic cliffhanger and so if it didn't slot into your story in some way that was uh something that you had thought through then why is it there and that's poor planning it's we talked about this kind of implicit agreement between players and the gm and if you're going to break that agreement that something is within your capabilities as eight level characters to deal with, then you need to communicate to the players in what way they are to circumvent it. Or if they can deal with it, but it's not in a head on conflict, then you should have foreshadowed that in some way. You should have, or at least given your players the tools to kind of deal with it. So now you're stuck in the lurch trying to figure out how you solve a problem that you created. And that's, I mean, you could probably finagle a lot of it, but frankly, it's not likely to be as given that what the, the cliffhanger portended, the resolution of that is not going to be satisfying. So you get the cool cliffhanger, but now the resolution is going to be something that's probably a hodgepodge of, of things to just simply solve for that cliffhanger. Mm. And you will hopefully have learned something here, which is to try to be more thoughtful about the way you construct encounters and instruct, construct a plot if you're going to be doing something that is your own devising with a lot of help from Tolkien. <laughs> um, so I, I suspect that the, the, you know, you're doing a homebrew and then. Obviously, this is very heavily influenced by Lord of the Rings, and so you were keen to include those elements when they didn't fit your game. And that's just silliness. You know, you don't... As much as I, you know, go on about how tropey D&D is and how we should kind of embrace some of those tropes and stereotypes and, and whatever, if your game just feels like a rehashing of Lord of the Rings, then it has no identity of its own. The players aren't likely to be all that invested and how this even gets resolved. They're like, well, we got out of it. We're not going to die. So that's cool. But it's like, 
why is the dragon here? What purpose does, if they're trying to get past it, surely there are ways that they can do that. But if your players have some instincts about what their knee-jerk reaction is to either sneak by or, or flee, Matt is absolutely right. You're not abandoning the plot by having them flee. You're, you're creating a new plot, one that's actually unique to your game, one that is you, you will have to forge ahead into the, into the unknown, and that could be super interesting if it creates new opportunities instead of shoehorning your players into one concept or one narrative, the the world is wide open if they flee and the, the plot's not abandoned unless, unless their goals somehow change simply because this one thing is in their way. And I would posit that adventurers that are deterred by a challenge being in their way are not determined or not worthy of the title of adventurer to begin <laughs> with. So... I don't know. Maybe that's a little preachy or, or smart. No, but I don't think so. Not at all. <clears throat> I think uh, you bring up a very good point that, yes, cool cliffhangers are cool. But when they become this big and this bad, it's uh, really like shooting from the hip can be very cool. But you got to think about stuff like this. This is really bad. The, the stakes need to suit yes. the situation. And so there's different stakes for different scenarios, right? I always talk about this in movies where it's like, if you're, if Arnold Schwarzenegger's in a movie and it's a movie about like army guys, in order to get the, like, for lack of a better word, dopamine uptick of something dramatic happening, it can't just be that somebody has a gun, right? Because these are army guys and it's Arnold in the movie. So you're already kind of set the stage for the fact that like most of the characters probably will have guns and there will probably be some sort of violence. But if you change the, the scenario around the dramatic stakes, if it were some stuffy aristocratic dinner party in, in Russia or something in the 19th century or early 20th century, and most of the dialogue played out like the characters were having some sort of political debate or philosophical debate, and then someone had a gun all of a sudden, that would be really dramatic. Even though it's just, you know, they have a mm -hmm. gun all of a sudden. Someone punches someone in the face when you're, you know, watching a sitcom. It, it, it the, even though it's just a punch and it's under any other circumstances, it's not super dramatic. But if it's more gravitating toward a quiet more real life situation then then it has value in its own right it needs to suit the situation so it can be if it's a real low stakes situation then someone having a gun or someone getting into a fight can be very dramatic and but if you set the world up that like these things are super commonplace then what you have to do is ramp up the stakes. And it sounds like you've done that beyond the PC's level is you wanted to ramp up the stakes of something to like, there's a reason that there's a, there's a hierarchy of levels in D and D because these things are typically reserved as the PC's game power in order to challenge them. And for something to be dramatic, it has to be an ancient dragon or a lich mm -hmm. or something because anything else is just, you know, bullshit. 
So typically I follow the rule of kind of like one to one and a half clicks up from the, if you want something to be dramatic, like if the lich that you guys were encountering was a real lich, then that would have been maybe a bridge too far, but it's like one to two clicks up from, then that might be like, oh my God, like we, unless the whole goal of the encounter is to just make it acutely aware that the party acutely aware that this is an insurmountable challenge to meet head on. And you thought out some different avenues, which it sounds like you haven't. Mm-hmm. So you need to have, in the future, think those out or don't include such highly dramatic situations just for the sake of ending on a really cool note. I agree with that. I think we'll uh, end it there. And yeah, don't, don't ever think that the plot arc is abandoned. There's always ways to bring it back no. around. But uh, we will hold off on uh, D&D Direct until next week. Let's get into uh, our main topic here, which I wanted to know because I see a lot of questions being brought up in uh, today's gaming, which I thought this one would have been everybody would be all for it. Recurring NPCs, the Mm -hmm. value that they bring to a story, uh, the value that they bring to levity and humor uh well what they can bring into a game some people say that they're not necessary and especially in medieval fantasy if the party is an actual adventuring party they travel too much there's no way that they would run into uh an npc again uh me myself i love recurring npcs i use them a lot uh especially because they're good contacts. Uh, Of course, me, I run a lot more modern and cyberpunk games now, so they're easier to come across. You know, you can just pick up a phone and call them or, you know, getting to see them is a lot easier. Uh, I've never, even in all of our old D&D games, the recurring NPCs that we always did have, I always loved them. Uh, Morgan, uh, uh, Morgan, sorry. Even our uh, nemesis, the Drow, loved him. Fucking amazing. Uh, we had a couple that would just show up here and there and just be like, oh, fuck, it's them. It's so good to see them again. Come in and talk and bring up what's been going on. And you actually have a conversation with them. Like, you're actually, like, giving them information that the G- the DM doesn't know somehow. But it just feels good to talk <laughs> about it. Uh, but what's your thoughts on recurring NPCs, Dave? People that don't like them are really missing out on a very rewarding part mm-hmm. of the game. I think. Um, I, I don't, I don't get this attitude. So, your players travel a lot. Okay. To me, it goes back to a fundamental question of why are they adventurers? Mm-hmm. And I don't think that the answer is typically likely to be that they're tantamount to like circus performers, that they're near do wells, right? Pirates or something like that. It has a lot to do with the fact that they probably want to do good in the world and hold back the tides of evil or whatever. So, to me, that speaks to a commonality, which is means that they care about something. They have to care about something. Yeah. Even if it's just something 
like a, an ideal or a value. So just because they travel doesn't mean they don't have any roots, for lack of a better word. And it's all the more important because they're not tied to any one place that you try to give them some sense of roots. And doing that with recurring NPCs over a long arc, just like in real life, exposure just breeds familiarity. Familiarity breeds affection. Even if it's somebody who might be a rival or a nemesis, there's catharsis to be had there. A, a villain that you've encountered five or six times, kicked your ass, and then you kind of held your own, and then you, you know, victory was just snatched from you, and then you finally get to kill them. Like, that's fucking catharsis, man. That, that's, you feel like that's a hard-won victory, and it's a feather in your cap. Even if you get no gold magic item or renown, you kill them in the middle of an empty field and no one's there. Like, you know mm. you did that. And so, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan of having recurring NPCs because it's a way to um, give the world texture and give the people personalities. And to your point, which is also a really good one too, they're really good mm -hmm. resources. If, if the party needs X, Y, or Z then if you have a rotating cast of, of somewhat familiar NPCs, then, then it doesn't seem shoehorned in. It doesn't seem like a deus ex machina. To my point previously about uh, random encounters, I think we were talking about this, and you know, a random encounter should in some way tie to the plot. I think I used the example of a manacore or something like that. A random encounter from point A to point B, and you encounter a manacore. It's like if you drop some seeds in the party's brain when they're just gossiping and socializing in a town, the manacore that attacks them should be one that they've heard of before. And it, that makes the world feel lived in and also gives it more stakes. You've eliminated this thing that was a threat to the people back in town. You're likely a hero, not just because you killed a terrible monster, but you could, you killed the terrible monster that like killed all their pigs and like, you know, burned their farm to the ground or whatever. <laughs> Those are the reasons that you would even care. I mean, if these if these monsters or whatever are not really affecting, if they're affecting the world around them in a negative way and you don't give a fuck about any of the people there, then why do you mm. give a fuck? Like, go somewhere where there are not monsters, yeah. right? <laughs> like, or just protect your own, right? You could just do that. So I think that's a good opportunity, too, to suss out what matters to the characters when you have NPCs that have complex personalities and it's difficult to give players complex or NPCs complex personalities in a, a real short term. They, they all just end up being a mouthpiece for the DM and they all seem flat and boring and, and the PCs don't give a fuck about them. They don't care what happens to them. So if something, if you need to pull a dramatic rabbit out of your hat and have one of them get injured or need something, it doesn't have as much punch, you know, oh my God, like this guy, you know, this, this guy that owns the farm outside town died. But if he's like a buddy of the characters, he gave them shelter or whatever, like his, his daughter is sweet on one of the PCs or something. If something bad happens to him, then there are stakes there and the, and the PCs are likely to, to feel that in some way. But if they're just a rotating cast of a mouthpiece for the DM, then all they are is just expositional information givers. And then they're pretty worthless to your game. You could just have it. PCs read shit in a book mm. or whatever. It's not that different. But when you create characters that are differing 
personality types, then certain characters might like them more or be sympathetic to them or they can present conflicting goods when the NPCs interact with one another, which shouldn't be frequent. I'm not a big fan of having uh, like a conversation with myself, but if one NPC brings up something to the party and then another NPC brings up something to the party, how do they deal with that? If those things are at odds, you know, this played out pretty nicely in our dead and they campaign. We had a pretty regular Mm -hmm. rotating cast of characters, uh, you know, like Shalendra was like this, you know, elvish noble. And then she had this kind of half brother who was a little more on the fringe of society. And then there was like, you know, some red wizards and like some politicians in, in Daggerdale. And they all have differing sensibilities. And when you have a real open world with a lot of options and competing goods, especially if you layer over the top of it like a, uh, like a some sort of ticking clock timeline, then then that's when the PCs have a lot of autonomy and they feel like they're making decisions that suit their group by aligning with certain NPCs or taking their advice. Whereas the alternative is just they're all disposable paper characters and the PCs are ostensibly railroaded or they just run around like a bunch of murder hobos doing whatever they want. So good NPCs, like if they're recurring, can anchor the characters. They can anchor their sensibilities and their values, not necessarily to a region, but it gives you fertile ground to return to a region if they know a certain NPC is there. It can be the springboard for a completely different adventure if you're homebrewing. There's so many versatile options that I don't know why anyone would poo-poo it. It's that, and I want to bring up that for the game master themselves, a good recurring NPC can be a lot of fun. It becomes that's like your character now, and yeah, if you are able to bring them to life, the the player characters really latch onto them. I in my <laughs> uh, Savage Shadowrun game, I created an NPC named Ryan, this very flamboyant gay elf character that they were just using as pretty much information for a while. And then all of a sudden I started, I just gave him so much life that he is now a roommate with one of the characters and he's just there all the time. And every now and then they'll just call up Ryan, like wonder what Ryan's doing. They want to know and they'll come and ask him questions and they got him a part of this big burlesque show that they put on as a front. And all this other stuff. And it was amazing. It turned out to be fucking awesome. And now he's because he's just a he's a mainstay. He will always be there. Because when you get players invested in a character, there's no telling where the players might mm-hmm. take the plot. And that's super fun as a GM. And moreover, uh probably a, a one of the best devices that I'm a fan of is if you're playing D&D or some fantasy, whatever, and say, you know, you don't want to go too heavy on having an NPC be a peer of the party, right? Like a fellow adventurer. Um, so you should use that pretty sparingly. Yeah, but if you have an NPC in the party, then it should be a fellow adventurer. But maybe they know other adventurers or other people who have adventured or something. And if you allow the players to really be invested in in that character, then it provides you an out. If anyone's character ever dies and they like a certain NPC, that NPC can assimilate into the party and they can run it and they already kind of like have the lay of the land. It's 
um, they're like, wow, yeah, it'd be really cool to run that character. Like if you've done your job of making them likable or, or annoying or just fun. And if you have fun playing the character, they will see that. And there is a certain devastation that comes when your character dies and your character suffers the final death. You're, you're disappointed. And so you feel like a lot of progress has been lost. But if you pick up with another NPC that has kind of been along for that journey, at least part of the time, then you feel like maybe you didn't lose as much. And it, it might seem like you're shoehorning the character, the, the player into uh, like playing a character of a certain class or a certain personality. But from my experience, the opposite is true. They're like almost like, oh, you're just kind of handing them a personality. And they're like, well, I, well you know, I could bring other elements to it. And they've been along for this journey and they're invested in them. And so they can kind of pick up and bring that character more to the fore. And, and it would be interesting for them, I think. And the more, the more NPCs you have that are recurring, obviously you're not trying to like have like a fucking Tolstoy novel or whatever, right? There's dozens of characters with all kinds of backstory and shit. But the more of those you have available, the more you have that for an option. But even just like a barkeep, that knows the the players that you know is is they're always in the same place and that's one thing and then maybe they have other traveling ones that can kind of show up at random areas where they are and and whatever and so it just provides a lot of options for adventure mm -hmm. hooks for plot threads for character development elements for those stall out times when the party just has no idea of what to do next and I think the more characters you have, like if you have one NPC, then the characters will always like go to them and like, oh, we don't know what to do. Or it's like, let's go ask fucking Bill, right? He seems to know everything. It's like, well, because he's ostensibly the dungeon master. And that's stupid. And it's not the way you should be encouraging your players to play the game. There should be, they should have a cast of characters in their head and go, well, okay, well, uh, who would likely know this information or, or who would likely be able to like do me this favor or whatever? And then they should have like a slew of people that maybe that come to mind and they could ferret stuff out. Because to my point uh, a couple of weeks back, if you build NPCs in the right way and they show up frequently, the characters earn their respect. And presumably, if they're worth their time, they're either some source of amusement. They're some source mm -hmm. of resource. They increase the character's status. Uh, so if they're a, a noble or whatever, then like, and it, and it gets to that thing that you want, which is to make your characters, your, your PCs, feel like their characters are awesome. And if they they feel like they have the ear of a, of a duke or they, uh, you know, whatever, somebody, some druid that runs some, you know, ancient magic and they have like a direct line to them and, they show it, then then they they foster those relationships, and they should be more valuable than any item or any amount of gold that you could dump in their lap. Do you have out of your uh, your DMing career? Do you have one NPC that reoccurred quite a bit that you you're a big fan of? I mean, I tend to break it down by campaign, um, so I have certain characters that kind of uh, uh you know, might reoccur within a campaign, but then usually when the campaign's done, I kind of say goodbye to that NPC. But some were, I'm, I'm enjoying running Tordek. 
I think Tordek is yeah, an whenever you character. are in control of Tordek, uh-huh. I, I I can see you're having a good time because you get to do really bad jokes. But you do, you yeah, have a lot I mean, of fun that's just Tordek. like a quirk. That's the little quirk that I've given him, but I've also tried to, you know, bring to the forefront like where his loyalties are and kind of the way he thinks about things. Uh, and he does provide a little levity. I, I really liked running Kane both as a PC mm-hmm. and an NPC. It was one of my favorite character concepts ever. Like I just um, turned that character all the way up to 11 and and just like kind of felt like I was always in command of a situation. It was really hard to run him as an NPC though because I was like, well, I don't know, like, you know, how do I not make him the main protagonist? Because that was kind of his his thing. But, uh, you know, there were there was some like, you know, like Red Hawk was like a kind of interesting mm. Amber, the like ranger chick that was also a, a bandit town sieging bandit chick. She was kind of cool. I feel like I didn't really like have a lot of consistency with her personality at that point uh, in my DMing career. I just kind of didn't really think long and hard about what kind of character, what kind of person she was. Uh, until I had established a few pillar personality points of her. So I think in the beginning, she probably was a little different than quite a bit different than she ended up being. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that as long as you know, if a character can grow or change in some way. But um, I'm more interested in what a good NPC brings out of mm-hmm. the party. You probably have more experience running a variety of games than I do. What do you... What are I guess what are some tactics that you use to bring certain things out of the players? With There's NPCs? a couple that I was thinking of already as like my favorite NPCs that I've ran that have helped bring the party out of their shell, so to say. Like right now mm-hmm. with the Savage Shadowrun game, other than Ryan, I really love playing Ryan. But I brought I took one of my old Shadowrun characters that was that had to retire because I played a, a dwarf rigger that. Whoa, hey, I don't think you <laughs> yeah. say it on the air, bro. Rigger, R-I-G-G-E-R. Oh, oh, with it. Okay, yeah, it was like two yes. hard R's, okay. Uh, and they uh, they contracted HMHVV, human, metafi- uh, human metahuman vampire virus, uh, and became a goblin. If a dwarf gets vampirism, they become goblins. And uh, and I love this character because she was just this dwarf that had... Uh, uh, that was in a wheelchair that she souped up as a rigger. You're all about drones and cars and making things move. Uh, and she mm-hmm. was in the wheelchair and uh, I was just souped up the wheelchair and she was just s- snarky and just a bitch the entire time. Uh, but as soon as she mm-hmm. uh, contracted vampirism, the GM was like, no, no more. We got to take her away. I'm not going to let that be in my campaign. So said goodbye, brought her back as an NPC. Now she's one of my favorites. But back in the fourth edition days, I made a Shadar Kai from Ikamu that was uh, like their champion there that the the player characters went and faced off against uh, in order to gain this weapon uh, from this tournament that they put on every year. And he ended up becoming good friends with the party. And I used him as like one of the main NPCs that I had always bring around or that they would always come back because he was a dickhead that was always trying to one up uh, the party people, especially Rob's character, Garrett. He always tried to one up them because that was Shatter Kyer like Klingons. 
they're all about war yeah. they're all about fighting and they're all about one-upping each other and then boasting about it so i would always bring in he'd always just shove you know mud in the people in the pc's faces being like this is what i've achieved what have you done recently i've heard you have a kingdom now pshaw look at this new tattoo i've gotten because i took down a you know a, a boule myself and uh i'd always just try to one-up them every time and use his smugness as it would kind of drive them to be great as well because they'd be off on an adventure and liam or somebody would say dude oh god i wish i could remember this npc's name i know it's just blanking on it but they'd be like oh my god i can't wait to just take this and throw it in his fucking face about how great this is i'm like fuck yes see that's what i'm talking about so you're you're more of a fan of using an npc to kind of push the players a little little bit bit. but it also gave them something to bring some role play into something to look forward to Mm -hmm. like after you know they just beat this one creature in a random encounter but they the first thing they thought of was just like oh my god i can't wait to see this guy again just so i can tell him all about this battle we just had yeah it lets them relive the victory and and uh, one mm-hmm. of them a little bit you know i've always i've always kind of missed i've never really had much effect with maybe it's because dnd is just a little more lighthearted in nature but i always wanted there to be some sort of like sentimentality toward mm-hmm. an npc like what the what the pcs would like sacrifice to to save or help uh someone that they have a great deal of affection for and i i think that i probably could do a better job about that uh i think i've done better in this campaign in the curse of strahd there's not a lot of npcs that are you know lively you know because there's that whole like a lot of people in barovia don't even have souls and so there's they're all just the kind of maudlin characters right but the few characters that aren't that way ismark and arena they don't really give you a lot of uh a lot of depth to their characters and i think that i mean maybe maybe not quite so much since you've joined the group but uh I've I've tried to bring those characters to life, especially as they've evolved into different stages of the adventure. I mean, admittedly, in the adventure, it's only been like like a month, probably like a month or maybe maybe not even about a month. And so, as their roles, the relationship to the the party has changed. I've kind of like evolved, like who they are. And then, uh, you know, I was looking forward to kind of playing the Lady Watcher, uh, but then that got nixed really <laughs> quick. So um, the party was just like, fuck this bitch, right? Uh, they ousted her and killed her. So that was, uh, that was like, yeah, I mean, it was amusing, but, uh, but yeah, I, I really wish there was a little bit more of a cast of characters that were memorable uh, in Curse of Strahd. But I think I've done better about you know, previously, I, I would venture to guess that something happening to Ismark or Arena probably would hit the party harder than like when Cody and Sean's characters just died randomly. <laughs> uh, I was going to bring up, uh, speaking of Amber and Mortigan from back in the day, when Mortigan died, who was a paladin NPC yeah. back in the day, Dave's brother Jace, like, flipped the fuck out. I had just started. I think that was like my second or third session ever. And yeah. Jace like flipped the fuck out and just went and we attacked and, uh, you know, attacked the monster, killed it. But one of the cool things was this dude meant so much to Jace himself, not just his character, but he picked yeah. up his Holy Avenger. And even as Jace was yeah. playing a cleric, couldn't use it, do anything with it. 
he yeah. carried it with him all the way until the end because he was just like this yeah. was my friend's sword i'm gonna keep this with me forever well he had it kind of in his background you know that uh mortigan was a little higher level than the pcs or actually quite a bit higher level than the mm -hmm. pcs and so i kind of set it up that like you know he's kind of your guide here and He's he's helping you out, and he was of the same faith as my brother was a cleric, and he was a paladin. They were of the same faith, and so he kind of taken him under his wing, because it was his my brother's very first campaign. You know, and you're not likely, especially we were young. He was maybe nine, um, so he didn't really know how to the game, and you can't expect someone to kind of like be the leader of the party or whatever. He's kind of a quiet dude, and so I I kind of used him as as almost like a like a training wheels, and so I've always kind of wanted some some reaction to to an NPC's demise or or something bad happening to them akin to that that I've never really gotten and it's kind of unfortunate but even the other PCs like yeah two PCs in our group die randomly and everybody was just like <laughs> oh shit sucks to be them I guess we better bury them before we get the fuck out of here we found the sunblade awesome right no one no one gave a fuck I mean Part of that was just because you kind of have to move on. They hadn't been in the group that long. Um, we'd been playing Curse of Strahd for what four levels. They were there for like one mm -hmm. level, uh, and then and Sean's character was really very plastic and very boring. Cody's character had all kinds of fucking depth and potential, and and you know affected the plot in all kinds of ways. He's a little gruff, and um. But yeah, he hadn't had time to build any camaraderie with anybody. So when they kind of kicked the bucket, it was more, well, what did it what did it mean just that people you were traveling with have died? Like, what does it mean to you? Not specifically that they had any connection or or anything, but recurring NPCs are a great way to build connection and have some sort of emotional punch when the dramatic stakes, uh, for better and mm -hmm. worse, right? Like, the victories are greater when you can share them. And, you know, the whole, like, somebody in the town that's really revered or whatever you know throws a big party or whatever and ah you know and everybody's there and everybody knows the pcs and it's like that's kind of what you want i would imagine even if even if they're gonna move on their legacy of what they've accomplished through the people that are recurring npcs in that region their deeds will live on through those people and will always be there this is how you build renown with your character you just do that in enough places and there's not it's like i always said that when i go to ann arbor it's like i can't go to fucking matt i can't walk 10 feet down the street in fucking ann arbor with matt without him seeing somebody he knows because he's been mm -hmm. there for so long he hangs out with like lots of people and he's super likable so it's like everybody likes him and it's like when your pc is that way in the world of D, &D you go to the sword coast you go to daggerdale you go to neverwinter and like somebody knows you, it makes you look like you are a badass because everybody likes and respects you or fears you. And that's just cool. Like it's way cooler than having a holy Avenger. Very much so. But I think that's going to bring this episode to a close. Uh, if you guys agree with anything that we've just said, if you disagree, especially. How dare you? First of all, yeah, fuck you. But run in and let us know why. Send it to inside the GM studio at gmail.com. Uh, we want to hear from you or give us something to talk about. We're running out of ideas here. We're busy people. We need more ideas. <laughs> but uh, for this week, uh, I've been Matt. I am David. A good night.